Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was booted! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math and Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where Anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. My name is Michael Shore. I was a writer for the first four point two seasons and a producer on The Office. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Office Deep Dive. I am your host, Brian Baumgartner. Today, I am thrilled to present to you or introduce to you Mr. Mike Schur. Mike was one of the original writers that was hired by Greg Daniels for The Office. And as some of you may know, Mike has had an incredible career since then, at the beginning of season five, Mike left to create Parks and Rec with Greg. And then after that, he went on to create and produce some of the greatest comedies of the last decade, like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Master of None, and The Good Place with one of my favorites, Ted Danson. And although that is very impressive, by far, his greatest singular professional achievement was his portrayal of Moe's Schrute. That's right. Mike played Moe's. Now, Moe's did not, as we all know, have a lot to say. But Mike, Mike is one of the best talkers that I know. He is an amazing storyteller. It's like his entire brain, it just, it just thinks in stories. I don't know how else to put it. He is a genius, and he is a genius. 
Uh, but truly, I could listen to Mike all day. Uh, I know that you're going to feel the same way. Plus, this episode is the beginning of another mini deep dive into the writer's room, which you will hear much more about next week when I talk to Greg Daniels. So pull up a chair, put up your feet, unless you're driving, and enjoy my conversation with Mike Schur. Bubble and squeak, I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every morning. Left over from the night before. Um, are we just starting? Are they? Are we just chatting? Yeah, I mean everything's being recorded. Um, <laughs> uh. What were you doing before you joined the writing staff? I was at SNL from 98 to 04. My then girlfriend, now wife, had moved out here in 2002, and we were dating long distance. And it was like, all right, well, one of us has to move. And it made more sense for me to leave SNL, where I had been for six years, and, and come out to L.A. So I told Lauren I was leaving SNL at the end of the year and had a year to kind of prepare, wrote, a, wrote spec scripts and came out here and had meetings and everything and had, I had a million meetings and Greg's was the most interesting by far, like for so many reasons. First of all, because Greg's an interesting person and because I loved the British office and that, that meeting was like two, two or two and a half hours. Yeah, Lee Eisenberg told me about, he was going in to meet and his agent said, just so you know, Greg does really long meetings. Yeah. And so Lee said he left and was like, God, that was a really long meeting. It went well. <laughs> and his agent was like, yeah, but he does really long meetings. I was talking to Aubrey Plaza the other day, and she was reminding me of this thing I've forgotten, which was, so after season four, Greg and I started developing Parks and Rec together. And Allison Jones called me and said, I just met with the weirdest woman I've ever met with. She's like 23, and she's here from UCB, and I... I don't know if there's a part for her, but you should meet her. And when Allison Jones tells you to meet someone, you you meet them immediately. And so I said, like, yeah, have her come over right now. So she came over, and I, t I went and told Greg, who was, we were at the office offices, and I said, uh, this Allison's sending this actress to meet us for the new show. And uh, he's like, okay, great. So Aubrey came over, and I said, hi, nice to meet you. Uh, Greg Daniels is going to join us in a second. And she was like, okay, cool. And we talked for like 15 or 20 minutes, and then Greg came in, and then like 10 minutes into the meeting, he just got up and left without saying a word. <laughs> and Aubrey looked around like, what is happening? And I just, I was used to it. So I just kept talking. Right. And then like half an hour later, Greg came back and just sat down with no explanation of where he had gone <laughs> and then talked for another like 15 minutes. And then just without a word in the middle of a sentence, got up and left again. And I was like, this is what happens with, <laughs> with Greg Daniels is <laughs> meetings are not normal meetings. Like one way or another, something weird is going to happen. Someone was telling us about... Allison Jones about being in a casting meeting at Ben Silverman's old bungalow. They're all sitting around a conference table and they're talking about casting for the pilot. And suddenly Greg gets up and jumps out the window. <laughs> and they all are like, what? And apparently Nancy Perkins in her like Boston outfit was uh, uh, accent was like, I've heard of producers wanting to jump, jump out, out the window. window yeah. And he, Thankfully, it was on the first floor, but he, uh, you know, he had left a sweater in his car. Right. 
And that was the most efficient way to he get just to his like, car. He just, like, he, liked his Terminator brain, like, a- analyzed the layout of the building. It was like, oh, the quickest route. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was your, that was the first time you'd met Greg. Yes. I, I knew who he was, obviously, and, uh, but I never met him before the meeting. And, um, we had a shocking amount in common. Like, we both, we were, we both went to Harvard, wrote for the Lampoon, both wrote at SNL, uh, met our girlfriends and then later wives there. Later, when my son was born, he had red hair, and Greg's son has red hair. There was a, it was like a, it's a very weird uh, <laughs> series of things. But, um, yeah, I'd never met him before. Um, there was a moment, um, we were in the old, in the, those days, the offices were in down in Culver City. And there was a there was a moment where we were deep in the weeds on the episode that I think became Hot Girl, the Amy Adams episode. And we were pitching and pitching and pitching different ideas and whatever. And I was I had a notebook and I was like jotting things down. And uh suddenly he said Greg said, Okay, well let's hang on for a second. Like, what makes a good story, right? Um here's what you need for a good story. And he started talking about, you know basic building blocks of storytelling, motivation, stakes, twists and turns, escalation, stuff like that. And he was sort of like almost just thinking out loud, right? Like, this is what, so we can't break this story. Why is that? But he was doing it in such a sort of professorial and thorough way that I realized like, oh, this is just a class. I'm in a class now. And I remember turning the page of my notebook and starting to take notes like I was in college just writing as fast as I could. Like writing as if he were a professor in a biochemistry class. And this was having subconsciously, you were- No, no, no. I oh, knew, I saw what was happening. I got I was you. Like, this, is, this is the theory of this world. And I just took notes for like 45 minutes like I was in college. And this is not a joke. There are, I still have them and I still go back and look at them. Like to this day, that's now, that was 2004. That was probably August of 2004. And I still- there are still moments where I'm like, why doesn't this make sense? And I'll go back and look at what he wrote, what he said that day off the top of his head. <laughs> and we're like, oh, you're right. You're right. That's what's missing. Um, like maybe a day later. No, I'm sorry. Early, much earlier. And this is like the first day of work. And, uh, you know, I went pitching, pitching, pitching. And I said like, oh, I had an episode idea where there's like a stray dog in the parking lot. And that the office kind of like adopts the dog as like a office pet. And Greg got really excited. And he was like, oh, oh, okay. I, I, had, an, I had a similar idea. I had a similar idea. That's a good sign. And he brought out a spiral notebook and he flipped through it, flip, 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 page after page of like serial killer level writing, like margin to margin, you know, things underlined and whatever. And he goes, uh, he flip, flip, flip. Okay, yeah, here it is. Okay, so here was my idea. So there's a stray dog in the uh, office park and they adopt it and then they all, they're all caring for it. And, um, I thought that Dwight could have this relationship to the dog and Michael would be really sad because the dog didn't seem to like him. And then Jim and Pam would kind of take over care of the dog and they would feed the dog. And then at night there was a question of who would take the dog home and Pam would take it home one night and Jim would take it home another night. And the dog would sort of become almost like a surrogate domestic animal for Jim and Pam. And then Roy would come in and Roy would bond with the dog and then the dog would go home. And he laid out like an entire story from beginning to end where this plot device of a dog just related to every single character in the office. And he got to the end of his like eight minute long pitch and there was a beat. And I remember going, well, yeah, I mean, I feel like we should do your version. That's <laughs> 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 that seems like you maybe thought this out, but the, the amazing thing to me 
about stories like that, of which there are many, is we never did that episode. Right. Like that, like he had episode after episode broken out and thought through just as background, just as like grist for the mill of like how he could understand, break down at a molecular level and understand the characters and their relationships. We never did that. We never even pitched that out. Like he had so many ideas like that that never got used. And when you sort of go back and analyze what made the show work, to me, I always go back to that because it's like he knew everything about every character before we started doing anything. And so as a result, there was this incredible lived-in feel to that office, this yes. richness and this like this kind of layered feeling of like these people have always been here and they've had three-dimensional lives before the cameras ever started rolling. And that that's just such a rare thing. I mean, usually you're scrambling like crazy right. in the early going of a show to try to figure out who everybody is, and Greg already knew. Yes, and it ties into why Quapus was such a great choice for that, too. So you have that lived-in quality, and Quapus with this genius idea of having us do the the 30 minutes of busy work. Yeah. We were all there, ready to go, right. 7 a.m., right. and he's like, you guys just start working. Make phone calls, pretend to hand each other documents, and I'm on the adding machine, and... You know, just little moments. Yeah. He essentially eliminated the artificial membrane between this is reality and this is fiction. He made it a fluid thing. And to your credit and the other actors in the show, we did a thing on that show for years where it was like, even if you're in the deep background, you've got to be at your desk. And it's a pain, right? It's like actors... You guys could have all been in your trailers, like playing video games or calling your children or whatever. But like the value of it feeling real like that. I mean, these things are so delicate, right? Because like it's it's asking a tremendous amount of the actors to sit at your desk for as long as you did. And all of these things that you would think of as sort of like a little theatery and a little actory and a little kind of like, we're going to be in character and we're going to kind of like... You know, it's a little embarrassing. It's a little like, oh, come on, what are we doing here? You know what I mean? It's a little like, but if there's a theory behind it, if it's not just like, let's explore the nature of drama or whatever, you see the benefit of it. And right. the benefit of it was from the minute they shot the first frame, it felt like everyone was really working in that place. Nothing about it felt fake. I mean, d down to the fact that like the set design was almost exactly the actual offices that the writers worked in, in right. Culver City. Like, they just recreated that. And so when we were writing in that first season, Greg would say, like, go, everyone spend, like, half an hour and just, like, mill around the set. We later recreated it, but, like, that was the set where we were working. And so we would sit at different desks, and you would sort of go, like, oh, like, from Pam's desk, she can't quite see Angela. That's interesting. Like... And then you would say, like, here's Creed, and Creed's got his back to the door, so, like, he never knows who's coming in. He's always going to be surprised anytime anyone comes in. Whatever. The t these tiny observations that you think of as, like, is this really anything? But then it is, like, right. because, it, because the whole show was about these tiny little observations and tiny moments, and when you've actually lived inside them as an actor or a writer, they become more meaningful, and you understand them at a deeper level, you know? We, when we went to Scranton for the office festival that year, whatever year that was, even then, it was what, what season was that, four? I think that was four, the convention. Yeah, yes. it was like season four. But even then, Greg was like, everyone go out, fan out, do research. And Lee and Gene and I drove around with Jason Kessler, our, our writer's assistant, 
and like took pictures and like wrote down the names of restaurants and there was a condo development and I took a bunch of pictures and I was like, I think this is Michael's condo was, um, had been in season two, but I was like, this is the condo development. And like, so I took different angles of like what it looked like down the road and stuff. And we handed them to Gallenberg and Michael Gallenberg is the production designer. And like, we were still that intent at that point and in, in like making sure we got it right even if it even if no one if the idea was even if you've never been to scranton and you never go to scranton you should still feel like you've been to scranton like Correct. that's how that's how intense it was hey girlfriends it's me carol fisher i'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of the girlfriends In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. 
she would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So the first season, we make the first season, and uh, other than the pilot, none of the stories are related to the to the British show. Right. But people still are like, boo. We know we were right. This was bad, bad idea. And they, and to this day, you'll find people who say like, they stuck to the British scripts for the first season, which we didn't, but no one remembers that because I remember the pilot was roughly the British pilot. Yeah, I I know. It's, uh, I felt from the moment of diversity day that what we were attempting to do was something really special. Yeah. And I was like, man, if people give this a chance. Yeah, I know. I, it's so funny, right? Because like the history of television has the same story repeated over and over and over again. And that story is the pilot aired and it was the lowest rated pilot in the history of blah, blah, blah. It's true of Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld has a letter, has like the ratings for the, or the testing, I think, framed the on te- his wall. Yeah. Cheers was the lowest rated pilot that NBC had ever aired to that point. The Office was like a disaster in the early going. Another thing, by the way, another thing Greg did that's amazing that I don't know if he has ever talked about. He told NBC when they tested the show, he was like, this is going to test terribly and you have to ignore it. He was like, it's, it's a mockumentary. The people aren't used to it. It's washed out color and fluorescent lighting. The boss is unlikable. It's going to test terribly and you have to ignore it. And then it tested terribly. And they didn't quite ignore it, but he had primed them to look at the results in a different way. Right. And it's a very gutsy thing to do, to pre-tell the network that the thing they've spent millions of dollars on is going to bomb. bomb. <laughs> well, Kevin Riley told the story that there are rooms. There are different rooms as they're being tested. Right. And they go in and they examine and it's like, bad. We think it's bad. We think bad, bad. And he got to the last room, which he said were all the interns and uh, assistants. And they were like, this is awesome. <laughs> and he was like, okay, okay. Like now yeah. we've got something here. And yeah. he basically took the people who didn't really count, but he was like, yeah, this is going to catch on. And I don't know if Kevin, if Kevin ever had this thought, but my thought was always that we were not fairly being represented because 
as MySpace was happening, social media was beginning to happen and you were hearing about these fanatical fans, some yeah. of the online forums, and you realized how many college kids were watching. Well, college kids don't have Nielsen boxes. Right. They're not weighing in on the fact that they're watching in their dorms. Yeah. Or, and so for me, it was always like, yeah, but they got to know that more people are consuming. I'm not sure they did. Well, I mean, yeah. uh, you know, that's the thing is like, of, of course, like that, the rating systems are so much better now, but they're still, even now they're crude. And like in 2004, forget it. Like that, you know, there was no way for anyone to to know to, or to judge how many people were actually watching anything. It was a really rough measurement. And I, I'm just like, it's, I'm so retroactively grateful that they didn't cancel the show because <laughs> it's clear. I mean, look now, just now it's, it's like the most popular show on Netflix today. Right. Um, Lee told me about, there were a, a, a couple of exercises that Greg would do in the writer's room. And he mentioned to me about the, he called it unlikely duos. Mm -hmm. Basically taking. He would, he wrote everyone's name down on cards and then he grabbed two at random and would send us off and go, go break some, you know, uh, Stanley Creed stories you know, go break some whatever. And yeah, we did that very frequently. He'd do that once a week. I always thought there was a little bit, it would, it seemed to be something he did when he was getting annoyed by us <laughs> <laughs> and our general incompetence. <laughs> but also it didn't feel like busy work. It felt like, oh, this is interesting. Like, yeah, right. What happens if Creed and Stanley are in a story or whatever? Um, Creed, who was one inch away from just being written off the show. I know. How did you decide who was going to, be gone, Devin or Creed. So, um, my this is my memory of this, and Greg would remember maybe more accurately, but we broke the episode where it was Halloween, someone was getting fired, right? Right. And it was like, all right, it's either Devin or Creed because those are the two people that uh, hadn't talked yet. And the original idea was it was Creed. Then we broke the episode, and the the Greg's sort of brilliant investigation of Michael Scott's psychology was instead of ripping the bandaid off and doing a responsible management thing, he f tries to fire someone and then gets talked out of it and then fires <laughs> the other person. And it was a coin flip. It was honestly like Creed or, or Devin, who knows? And then he was like, well, I, I don't even know if there was a reason, but he switched it so that he fires Creed and then Creed talks him out of it. And I was on set with Feig shooting the episode where Michael buys a condo. And Feig was going to direct that Halloween episode. So uh, the episode that Greg wrote, which is wonderful, has in it probably a six-page scene where Michael's like, I'm sorry, I have to let you go. And Creed talks him out of it. And we read it on the... We were at the location for Michael's condo. And we read the script. And I was like, oh my God, this is so funny. And I went to Feig and I was like, did you read this? It's so funny. He goes, yeah, it is really funny. Can Creed act? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I have no idea. I don't think I've ever heard him talk, but like, let's roll the dice. And then, you know, he's amazing. So it was, but it was literally in my memory. At one point it was, he fires Creed. At another point it was, he fires Devin. And it just ended up the way it ended up. But I don't think there was any reason for it. I think it was, I think it was a crazy, I think maybe Greg liked the real story, which we all knew by then that Creed was the actual Creed Bratton who had been in the grassroots and right. everything. So maybe that had some, effect or something but yeah it was random chance that's so crazy um going back to the unlikely duos thing though for a second i was talking to kate flannery about christmas party and meredith 
flashing Michael, but then also having this tender moment with him after he runs over her with his car. Right. I don't think those came from unlikely duos. Although Michael hits someone with his car was an early pitch. I don't remember who pitched it, but that that card was up on the for on the board for a while before we did it. But the thing where Meredith flashes him was nothing more than like the premise of that episode which I wrote was Michael has an image in his head of what a good party is. And a good party is like a Playboy mansion. And he says that in the episode, he's like, it's Playboy mansion. It's people with head sha- uh, lampshades on their heads. He is a very, a very old timey, like, like late seventies, early eighties like, right. kind of idea of what a, right. like a crazy party. A is, rager. Right? Yeah. It's just, it's, it's people being drunk and, and lampshades on heads and stuff like that. And so he does a bad job for a while of being a good boss and throwing a good party because he throws a hissy fit when uh, people don't like his gift enough and then it gets stolen in the, you know, whatever. And then he gets an oven mitt from Phyllis, which he doesn't like. Uh, but then he becomes a good boss because he goes out and he buys a ton of vodka and he comes back and is like, you know what? Everybody cut loose. And it's kind of a good, uh, kind of a good move. It's right. not, it's a little bit of a blunt instrument, but it kind of works and the party ends up fun. And so Greg was like, well, he should get a little reward not in the sense of like a sexual reward, but in the sense of like, he should get what he wants, which is a crazy party. And the first thing that the, the genius of the breaking of that story, which I don't take credit for, it was, a, uh, they were all group efforts as a general rule, but he first tries to manufacture his own reward, which is he puts a lampshade on his own head and runs <laughs> out and is like, look, it happened. Right. And then Packer shows up and that's like kind of a reward. But then like the end of it of Meredith flashing him is like, he actually got his dream. He got his dream of like a crazy office party. And like, even though it's not appropriate for the office and it's not, you know, he doesn't actually feel good about that. You can see it in his face. He's like, oh, this shouldn't be happening. <laughs> right. But he can't resist taking a picture of it because it's like, this is evidence that I, I did my job and threw a great party. Yes. Right? It <laughs> is strangely one of my all-time favorite singular moments. Meredith flashing him? On the show, yes. Because I feel like it is so perfect. And that episode, that was just such a huge episode for the ensemble. Yeah. You know, everybody Everybody really had something to do. And the show sort of was beginning to take off at that time. Yeah. We were McDougald, which was a pleasurable (laughs) yet, you know, interesting experience. And, uh, And yeah, I don't know. There was just something about the way that played that told... Yeah, everything about well, Michael and yeah, and but you're right though. the The key to that was the Secret Santa, White Elephant, uh, Dirty Christmas, whatever you want to call it, thing meant everyone. When I when we were when I was assigned that episode, the first thing I did is I went home and made a list of who got uh, who. I did a real draw. We knew certain things. We knew that Jim had to have Pam, and we knew that Michael had to have Ryan. But then I put everyone else's name in and I just did a random draw and Kevin got Kevin. And that's where that came from. Really? And yes. And when I and when that happened, I was like, oh my God, that's perfect. Like he just buys himself a gift, doesn't tell anyone, and buys himself a foot bath. But yeah, I did I so I did a real draw and I had it mapped out. And I when I was writing the script, I printed it out and hung it next to my computer because it got so confusing of like, wait, who has whom? And there's a bunch of stuff in the deleted scenes where you see the other gifts that people like you know like in the episode oscar got creed and gets him like a crummy keychain and creed got jim and gave him some old shirts who were lying around (laughs) but then like every everybody had a like there's a george saunders book toby bought someone a book of 
George Saunders short stories because that book had come out, Civil War Land and Bad Decline, which was one of my favorite books had come out. And I was like, I'm just going to get this in the show because I want to. <laughs> so like it, it, you can actually map out who everyone, who everyone had and who, what they got for each other person. That's awesome. Yeah. I was, never knew that. Yeah. The Kevin. Kevin. It in was, your it, random drawing. Kevin got Kevin. Kevin yeah. got Kevin. Yep. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, was booted. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene. I've lost on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men... How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So Lee talked about this. I was talking to him about if there were specific strengths because the episodes were different. Mm -hmm. Were there ways that either interested people or they were better at? And what he said was that he felt like he and Gene were much more in the sort of cringe comedy. Yeah. um, Oh, yeah. Which, you know, if you look at Dinner Party, that certainly fits that bill. And what they, they said about you was that you were much more optimistic. Do you feel like that's true? Yeah, I do. Um, I feel like my sweet spot on the show was, well, Christmas Party's pretty optimistic episode. But like the episode branch closing that I wrote, I loved that story because Jan walks in on the first page of the episode and says, we're shutting your branch down. And it, Michael has a complete collapse. And then he says, no, I'm not letting this happen. I'm, I'm going to do something about this. And he and Dwight head off and they go to David Wallace's house in Connecticut and are just like, I'm going to confront him and I'm going to make him see that this is not the right decision. It is utterly ineffectual. Wallace never shows up. <laughs> they just end right. up sitting there and are miserable and completely unbeknownst to them through a variety of other machinations, the branch ends up getting saved. But there's a scene in the end where Michael and Dwight are sitting in the car and that all hope is lost. And Michael says, okay, top three favorite moments ever at the office. And Dwight says like, you know, my first day when you sprayed me with the fire extinguisher and when yeah, I got sick and you came into the MRI, you know, I got a concussion or whatever. And then Dwight says, uh, what about you? What are your favorite moments? And Michael says, all of them, every single one. And then Dwight says, well, what about when Jan showed up and said the branch was closing? And he's like, come on, man. But um, that I remember just thinking like this, and it, that scene wasn't in the outline. And I remember writing that scene and thinking like, that, that this is like I locked into that idea. And I think it's just because it was like a moment of humanity between the two of them where like the office is very meaningful. It's all Michael has. And him being able to just sort of express in a sincere and human way what he loved about the place, like... That kind of thing, I really felt like that that was my jam. Um, But yeah, I mean, those guys, like Greg's theory was that writing staff should be like the X-Men, where he's like, if you have all people who are the same and have the same like comedic power, you're going to have one awesome thing about the show. But if if everybody has his or her own comedic power, then you get everything. 
And so, yeah, I think Lee and Gene were really into the like super, I mean, those guys are so funny. Like Scott's Tots was an episode they pitched very early on that Greg was like, we're never doing this. And then long after I left, I was watching him like, oh, I guess Greg gave in. Uh, but yeah, they love that. Jen Salata was, um, her superpower is just this incredible connection to Pam. Um, she's also hilarious, but like she was like the beating heart of the show, I would say. Not just through Pam, through all the characters, but like the episode where the bird dies and Michael has the funeral for the bird, that was Jen from beginning to end. And we kept like tinkering and tinkering and tinkering and she eventually was like i think i just understand this and i just want to write it and we were like great and then it's amazing and the part of it that she really locked into was pam pam understanding what michael was going through and giving the eulogy and trying to make michael feel better by talking about this dead bird it's a really complicated emotional moment but jen just like understood it at some fundamental level and you know Paul was really into Michael's when Michael was at his absolute worst. Like Paul was super into the the Michael's worst instincts. <laughs> right, right. Um, Mindy was Mindy's superpower was always um, the super absurdist stuff. The really like crazy flights of fancy. You know, famously in the episode where Michael burns his foot on the George Foreman grill. Yes. When Michael burns his foot, I mean, again, every episode that everybody wrote was always rewritten a tremendous amount. But I will say that that first monologue Michael has where he's explaining to the camera how he burned his foot, I don't think we changed a word of it. Like Mindy turned in her script and that speech was in there and it was really long and it's really complicated and it has it's a crazy roller coaster and I don't think we changed a single word because she just like, she would lock into just the the super absurdist stuff presented very straightforwardly. Like... Yeah, I mean, everyone, everybody had something they were good at. That stuff was incredible. Yeah. Um, you talked about yourself and Michael and his love of The Office. Was there an early idea that he would eventually find love and that would take him away? Yeah. Th I mean, that's always an idea in every TV show, right? If anyone is single in a TV show, there's a lingering question of, like, does that person find a life partner? But... It was also very important for the show that, that that doesn't happen for a long time. And then after, and and w as I was leaving to go develop Parks and Rec with Greg, we met with Amy Ryan. And that so that was beginning of season five. And that was like, that was the first time it was like, okay, we're shifting into a different gear with this guy. Like, who knows how long this show will last, but we're, it feels like we're at some kind of midpoint here. And it we had done it at that point, we had done almost a hundred episodes. Yeah. And it was like, okay, it's time. Like, it's time to to create a character for Michael Scott, who's like a viable love interest. And Jen was a big part of that because she was like, oh, she should be as big a dork as he is. Like, that's the way to do this, right? right? It's not aspirational in the sense of like, she's a really put together, like, you know, sophisticate who's gonna, who Michael has to change for. The thing that links them is like, she's a dork and she does dorky voices and she does lame videos and like dances and she's a female version of Michael Scott which is perfect. And all of that stuff then came after I was gone. But Jen and Paul and I, at least, and I think maybe um, Greg met her later, but Jen and Paul and I, I think, were in the initial meeting that we had with her where we basically geeked out about The Wire for like, <laughs> for like an hour. Um, but she's a lovely person and had, it was like, oh yeah, right, this is going to work. This is Michael's girlfriend. Right. You said earlier um, in 
you know, in a slightly dismissive way, like every television show, you have a single guy and then eventually they're, but you know, what's so crazy. And maybe I'm alone here, but I don't think I am. I never thought about that for Michael. It wasn't like, it was the fact that he wanted it. I don't know. It was not, it was never a high stakes thing. I think there was Jim and Pam. Yeah. You know, there was some other stuff going on Yeah, and that, the assumption watching was whatever, whoever he gets is going to be a disaster, right? <laughs> like, it's just not, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. And I don't, I'm not invested in that. And I think it's not until very, very later when he calls her, it's actually, she's not even there yeah. on the phone. It's when he has herpes. Yes. Yeah. And or says, he has herpes. yes. Yeah. And says, you're wrong. Um, the, so Greg, again, had a lot of theories. And um, they were all correct. And one of the things he said, he pinpointed for us very early on what makes this, what makes the British show so good, right? And part of it is a, a once in a generation performance from Ricky Gervais. And some of it is um, other incredible actors and, and just wonderful, like a, a wonderful premise in the sense of like a mockumentary comedy show was a great idea, blah, blah, blah. But he broke it down even further and he said almost every show in history has had a formula and the formula is the center of the show is a will they won't they sam and diane romance and often the corner is a wacky boss and occasionally the wacky boss comes in does something wacky and funny and gets big laughs and then leaves and very simply the british office inverted it the wacky boss is the main part of the show and shoved into the corner is this will they won't they romance and what that does two things. Number one, it makes the wacky boss into a viable character worthy of introspection and layering and dimension in a way that the wacky boss is not traditionally. No one usually cares about what's going on in the wacky boss's emotional life. And it also means that when you shove the romance into the corners and it becomes this very delicate gossamer spider web of glances and and tiny little moments in the getting someone a candy bar from the vending machine becomes an enormous emotional moment, right? Right. Then you have changed, you fundamentally change the way audiences relate to romance, which is they're like, they're like on the edge of their seat, like, oh, I only got eight seconds of the romance this week. I want more. Right. So I want to ask you about another big episode you wrote, The Job, where Jim finally asks Pam out to dinner. Was there a, a fight about that finally no. happening? There was a big fight about the end of season two. The, the kiss. kiss. Okay. That was not, there was no fight there. That was like, it was, uh, that was like a crazy intense time. The ends of seasons were always like, we were so behind. And But Greg and Paul and I broke that episode together and we're going to write it together. Greg was going to write the first half and Paul and I were going to split the second half. And then Greg was like, I don't have time. You guys write it. And also then Paul was like acting a lot. And it was like, all right, I guess, I guess I'll do it. <laughs> but Paul and I ended up writing it. But Greg really was, the, was like, here's what this story is. And it was like, it was very complicated. They're going for a job and Karen was going for the job and Jim had to leave Karen and, and uh, go back and whatever. And so Paul and I wrote it and on, on the script, on the, Read through it said written by Greg Daniels and Paul Lieberstein and Mike Shore. And after the read through, which went really well, 
Greg was like, I shouldn't be credited on this. I didn't write this. And I was like, yes, you did. Like you broke the story. Like we were sitting in that room with you and you laid out the beats of the story. Also, you sh- you could take writing credit on every one of these episodes if you <laughs> legally, if you wanted right. to. But he was like, no, I don't. I, I, you guys wrote this and I should step back, which was an insane thing to do because we knew it was going to be a huge deal. Paul and I ended up winning a Writers Guild Award for it. And I remember thinking like, this should just be Greg. Like I, I like... He was such a model of showrunnerdom to me, just in the in the the thoughtfulness with which he did everything. Um, it's crazy that he's not credited on that episode. Anyway, there was no fight over that. That story was really clean. We changed very little of it. Everything sort of unfolded very naturally. And then that take that Jenna did, I in my memory, I could be wrong. I think that's the first take we did. No, I'm sorry. It was the second take we did because... There was an amazing camera thing. It's really subtle. This is why, like, Randall was so great. Um, she's doing talking head, and then Jim knock, just knocks and, and, and walks right in, right? And the camera swings over to him, and he says, are you free for dinner? And, it, and she says, yes. And he goes, great. Then it's a date. And he walks out, and then the camera swings back to her, and she says, I'm sorry. What She's smiling and about to cry and says, I'm sorry. What was the question? And so the first take we did was wonderful, and I was like, well, that's perfect. That's great. And then the second take camera swings over to Jim. He says, great, it's a date. And when the camera swings back, it pushed in. And it's just, it mimics the exact thing that the audience did, which is it leaned forward. It just, the camera just leaned forward because it was like, oh my God. <laughs> like, and the thing that's been talked about a lot when people talk about the show is how the cameras are characters. But at key moments like that, the operators and the directors were so good at being like, the camera should lean forward the way the audience is leaning forward at that moment. And that take is just, I, I, it's my favorite bit of acting Jenna ever did on the show. I think it's absolutely perfect. Randall talked about, in terms of the documentary style, he said, everything that makes it harder makes it better. And what he was talking about was that he was insistent upon having to work to get the shot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's also... Um, um, that's also set design. That's everything like that. And we would often move stuff into the frame, right? right? Like we would drag the plant plants a over. Lot. Yeah, the plant, the plant constantly. by us, yeah. But I, I remember some episode I was on the set for, somebody wanted to do something where there was a conversation at the desk and then the person walked off and then it sort of jumped to the other side of the room near the hallway leading to the, in, into the kitchen. And they're like, all right, we want to, the cameras are here and here. And then we jumped to this shot over here. And Randall was like, I don't think it's possible. The camera operator would have to get all the way into the annex where Toby sits in order for that to happen. And we were like, huh? And he was like, well, let me try it. And so we took a, he loaded a camera onto his back, onto his shoulder, and they rehearsed the scene. And then Randall ran down the stairs, ran through the parking lot, and ran up the stairs with a gigantic camera on his shoulder to see if he could get set up in the annex to shoot into the kitchen from the other side in time. And he was like a second late, but he was like, all right, I'm going to say that that's possible. <laughs> and it was like, again, it's going back to this thing I was saying earlier, where like all of this stuff that like, is it real? Could it really happen? Like, does everyone have to be in character at their seats for half an hour before we roll? Right. Like, it's a little bit actory and a little bit like, whoa, we're like, let's enter this fictional realm. And like, it's a little embarrassing. Method. It's a little method, right? And it, And that stuff is a little bit like you roll your eyes a little bit. But look at the result. And it, it isn't that unless you have people like Randall and Matt who are like, well, wait a second. What's the reality of this? Like, if there's two cameras, which we pretty much established that this documentary crew has two cameras, 
I mean, I remember Jeff Blitz coming, who was a documentary filmmaker, and him directing. I was talking to him about the theory of the show, this kind of standard pattern that we would go through with directors. And I was saying, like, you have to set up your shots as if they could really be captured. And he was like, well, based on the show, these are the most talented documentary camera operators of all time because they seem to get everything. And I was like, yes, they are. They're very talented documentary filmmakers. But you have to make sure you get everything or that everything you get is gettable by real people. Now, the rules were very, very, very strict for like three or four years. As they went on, they got a little less strict. And I remember having conversations in season four about... Oh, no, it was in season three. It was the it was the Traveling Salesman episode. Lee, Jean, and I wrote it. And basically, like, you went off with Dwight and Jim. You went off with Phyllis and Karen. Oh, yes. You went off with um, Stanley, Stanley and, and, and Ryan. Ryan yeah. And there were cameras back in the office. And we were like, well, what do we do now, right? And Greg was like, you know, the documentary company is doing another documentary somewhere else. And it just got into a bunch of festivals and it got bought for a lot of money and they're flush with cash and they hired other operators. Okay, let's go. And it was just like, okay, so we're relaxing the rules a little bit because there were suddenly five or six cameras Right, going right, on. right. Um, but for a long time, like you don't get the purity of what the show was unless you create those rules and stick to them and right. say like, sorry, you gotta, we got to... And we would cheat sometimes. We would have security cam footage rarely, like in the episode where there was a, the Ryan burned the toast. I think there's a security cam shot because we really wanted the shot of Michael shoving people out of the way and running out the door. And there was right, no right, way right. to get that with the cameras that we needed still in the thing, whatever. So we would cheat sometimes. But it was funny because when Greg and I started Parks and Rec, which is also a mockumentary, we were like, okay, the, the, um, the deal is the office was such a success that now the documentarians have a lot more tools. Like we were like, now the rules are even looser and we would set up shots. And so like, if you track through the entire history of both of those shows, by the end, the documentary crews were like, there were 15 cameras and 38 sound guys and whatever. Right. Um, I think that's the thing that they did keep through the end though, was they wouldn't use a shot where a camera guy would never, be. Never did that. That was the one hard and fast rule. Like if if Michael was addressing a group of people and you were right over his shoulder onto the group of people, you could not then cut over the, through the crowd back flat on Michael where you saw space on both sides of him where one of the, that camera would be there. I don't think they ever broke that rule. If they did, it was very late in the game. No. There were times when we kind of needed to do something like that and Randall or Matt would walk around and go like, well, what if the camera's hiding behind something next to him or whatever? We would stage him near a pillar. And the idea was the camera was over there and then like got out of the way. Like, because in real life, Matt and Randall would communicate with each other using hand signals. I'm, I'm demonstrating this as if this isn't a podcast. Yes. But they would communicate. They would wave like I'm going this way or back up or whatever, like in the middle of a take. And so we began to feel like, okay, well, that's what they would do in real life. They would. Right. So there were times when there was a camera in a certain place. And then when you cut to the other side, like it was a real close call, whether you would have seen that camera. But as long as Randall and Matt could work it out where Randall would like duck out of the way in time, they'd be like, okay, well, that's possible. So right. if they're again, very talented. <laughs> right. If they're they, very <laughs> good. Really well. Yeah. yeah. But I really do. It bears repeating. Like, I don't think the show is what it is without the adherence to that kind of reality and those rules that Greg and Ken and everybody else set up, you know? Right.
right, folks. I'm going to stop Mike there for now, but he will be back. So if you're wondering, why didn't we talk about Moe's? Don't worry. We will get to that. Moe's will be discussed as well as uh, lots of other juicy tidbits. Thank you all for joining me. I hope you have the best week ever. And uh, we will be back next time for more of The Office Deep Dive. The Office Deep Dive is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Lang Lee. Our senior producer is Tessa Kramer. Our associate producer is Emily Carr. And our assistant editor is Diego Tapia. My main man in the booth is Alec Moore. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by my great friend Creed Bratton. And the episode was mixed by Seth Olansky. The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zinn for a spin. Zinn nicotine pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction. Anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. Get in gear with the Zinn 10 Challenge and enjoy 10 smoke-free, spit-free days for just $5.95. Order online and start your new journey today. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast.